Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the sidelines of the Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show in Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Alex Cresswell, the CEO of Talis UK on building transatlantic defense industrial resilience. But first, while at AUSA today, we met with Steve Hedger, the CEO of American Rheinmetall, the U.S. subsidiary of the German giant that has seen a renaissance in orders in the wake of Russia's war on Ukraine. The company has expertise on everything from electronics to munitions to guns to heavy vehicles as well as aerostructures, having been selected to produce the center fuselages of F-35 jets going into service with Germany's Luftwaffe. Just a few months ago, the company scored a major win when the U.S. Army downselected it as well as General Dynamics as finalists for the optionally manned fighting vehicle contract effort to develop a new generation of combat vehicles for the service. But before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Here's my conversation with Steve Hedger. Steve, thanks very much uh, for the time. Congratulations on the new job and for the big XM30 win. Yeah, thanks. Uh, We're thrilled to be here at AUSA. Thanks for making time so we can talk to you about uh, how we're pulling it off. Uh, Indeed. Rheinmetall is an extraordinary company, uh, you know, certainly a household name in a European context. Uh, And in the wake of the Ukraine war, you guys have seen uh, the, the likes of growth you guys probably haven't seen until perhaps the heights of the Cold War. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what the growth strategy is, uh, and equally importantly, how you guys manage to execute. Uh, Because you guys have landed uh, orders, whether it's for ammunition, for vehicles, uh, you guys are expanding and becoming an F-35 partner, uh, doing uh, the uh, uh, center fuselage for the the jets. Talk us a little bit, talk us through the growth strategy and the execution strategy. Yeah, I'll say, when you look at the Ramatel Group writ large, number one, when the opportunity presented itself and the need arose, we listened. And we sought to be there for the customer. Tell us what you need, tell us when you need it, tell us where you need it, and act as fast as possible to be responsive. Perhaps you're seeing that most with how Remitals responded with Ukraine. Uh, we just received clearance to establish a joint venture with our Ukrainian partners. We understood what the right side of this activity was. We understood the necessity to be close to those folks and to deliver for them, and we did that coming back with our own home government. So whether that was Germany, our Eastern European partners, the United States, if you listen and you deliver and you bring capacity right now, you're going to have orders. And and what's the challenge uh, in terms of execution, right? I mean, every major company, uh, whether it's an ammunition maker, a missile maker, uh, or even a vehicle maker, right, is finding supply chains uh, strained. And that's particularly acute on the weapon side of things. You guys uh, made an acquisition in Spain to increase shell production. How are you guys addressing that speed part of it to be able to respond and to get those munitions and those systems into the hands of folks when supply chains are strained? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's, it's, there's a balance between how much you invest as a company at risk and how much you wait for the customer to give you orders uh, before you act. And Rheinmetall leaned a little bit forward on that. We made some investments internally at risk 
because we saw where things were going and we understood the customer would come. Other companies weren't as prepared to do that and therefore they fell back a little bit. And that also creates an intimacy and a comfort with your customer that they know you're there for them and listening. So one is we were willing to invest at risk and that investment was a wise investment. We were willing to partner where necessary and then we were able to, willing to invest in terms of expanding our capacity, not just with the organic step-by-step -step growth in our current factories, but with an acquisition like we did with XPAL. Um, where, where, you know, what are some of the lessons you're drawing, whether it's from, I mean, the interesting thing about uh, the Hamas attack on Israel is, you know, Israel had moved a lot of munitions over to Ukraine, now it needs munitions, and so everybody's now scrambling to try to figure out how to do that. From your standpoint, folks have been trying to learn the lessons of uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and now from this Hamas attack. What does that tell you in terms of how you guys are shaping your strategic portfolio? Because you guys, as you said, pride yourself on getting to where the customer is going to be before the customer asks for, for you know what I mean? You guys try to stay a, a step ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's still a balance, right? So we are, we are taking clear demand signals and taking risk where we know it makes sense or other places where we do need the customer to come to us. And it when you're talking about the scale of this, some of these industrial uh, investments, you see it here in the United States, you certainly see it in Europe, you need a, you need a national partner in some of these industrialization pieces as well. Um, but we're also pushing the envelope on technology. There's immediate need, and there's midterm need, and there's long-term need, and you have to be addressing all of them at the same time. So when you look at Ukraine, there's a fight today, there's an enduring fight, there's a Ukraine that, God willing, will be free and uh, not at war. What's happening in the Middle East? There's an immediate fight, there's a long-term security threat. And so we're trying to adjust and prepare ourselves and listen to our customers' needs to meet those needs, both in the immediate sense, but in the long-term partnership sense as well. That to us is an effective business model. Um, are, are there particular business areas, because you guys tend to be pretty gardened sometimes in, in where you guys are putting uh, some of your investment, but you're also now a company that does spread, that does run the gamut of technologies, right? In virtually everything from you know, the, the uh, radar and electronic space all the way to the aerostructure space, to the munitions, to the vehicles. When you look at the outlook where are you guys going to be putting investment and shaping that portfolio? Because increasingly, you guys are a global company. Yeah, I mean, I'll say, Ramatol, we are increasingly and in very much a systems house, particularly in the land system space for, for, uh, for armies around the world. Um, number one thing we're doing is meeting the immediate need, right? Because when your customer has a need, you've got to be there for them. That builds the trust that makes them want to stay with you in the future. Number two is we are bringing new technologies that address this connected battlefield. Digitization is a huge priority for us at Rheinmetall. Loitering munitions and advanced munitions capabilities. So not just dumb artillery, but smart artillery. The propellant, the rounds, the technologies that go into guiding those types of systems. The electronic systems, of course, we're very prominent in the vehicle system space. When you're doing an entire vehicle system, you have to do everything from automatic target recognition technology, autonomy of uh, ability of a vehicle to move autonomously. Uh, here in the United States, we're going to a two-soldier crew. That's very advanced technology when you're going to have two soldiers fighting the vehicle and driving the vehicle at the same time. So we are investing in those technologies that will enable our partners to remain dominant in the future, whether that is deterring enemies against us or, God forbid, if they want to fight, making sure our folks win. Um, let me take you uh, to uh, the XM-30 win. Uh, optionally manned fighting vehicle is the future of where the United States Army wants to go. Uh, General Ross Kaufman, who is now the number two at Futures Command, worked that issue when he was the cross-functional team lead. Talk to us a little bit about your proposal and how you guys ended up 
beating incumbents, right? General Dynamics is in it, and you guys are. There were supposed to be uh, three was the expectation, but the Army said only two of these proposals qualified. What is it uh, that you think is your edge in this competition, ultimately? Yeah, I think I said at the beginning. First, I mean, we are, we are privileged and we are thrilled uh, with the outcome. We do feel we've done something special, and we've done something that incumbents here in the U.S. and other companies who've tried to enter weren't able to do, and that, that wasn't by mistake. We organized, we learned from the lessons of the past, and we brought the Army something different. This is listening again. And what the Army wanted was competition, they wanted opportunities for new capacity, and they wanted people who were really, really focused on the technologies they were developing. And I'll tell you one particular special sauce here was the change to digital engineering. The Army is making a pivot overall with industry on how they develop systems. They want to be able to test and design technologies at lower cost and quicker paces. That's in a digital engineering environment. And at American Rheinmetall, we were able to, clean, to develop our digital engineering environment a bit with a clean sheet. While we're a global giant, here in the U.S., we can act like a startup in some ways because we were smaller as American Rheinmetall than we were as global Rheinmetall. We developed a clean digital engineering environment that enabled us to really deliver an exquisite technology solution for the Army, and that stood out when it came time to make a selection. So what are the next phases that you're going into this, right? I mean, this was, uh, you know, even though you guys have that depth of experience and you're delivering for your customers, this is an all-new vehicle, it doesn't exist, right? This was a digital competition, as you said. What are the next steps? Because, right, the United States Army also wants to see that investment, wants to see the facilitization. You guys got burned a little bit on this. You guys built a factory in Australia and it ended up going to Hanwha. Uh, so in this particular case, you turned the tables a little bit on them. What are the next steps, Steve, as you guys build out that capability and then because it's going to be a massive investment in the United States for that industrial infrastructure? Sure. I, I will say, first, we are building our workforce to make sure we deliver. So the customer at first wanted to know, can we meet their needs, do we understand their technology wants, and do we give them a credible design? Now the customer is going to test, can you actually deliver that? And that is 100% what we and our teammates are focused on is when it's time to bring that prototype into the, uh, to the U.S. Army, when it's time to put that in soldiers' hands for initial testing, we are going to meet their timelines. And I think, you know, Vago, that has not been something that has been done with much success in uh, a lot of Army programs. So for American Rheinmetall, we want to continue to distinguish ourselves, first by listening, second by delivering, and delivering on the timeline the Army has set for us. Um, do, can you uh, give us any milestones, for example, where you wanted the facilities to be? Uh, what are going to be your manpower needs, right? Can you, can you give the audience some sense on what that footprint looks like, say, over the next five years as this competition goes forward? Sure. Um, well, look, we are, we're going to triple our workforce here in the U.S., largely in our Michigan facility, uh, right off the bat. Uh, we, uh, we have an exquisite, wonderful team of, of partners here in the United States, including Textron, who's an industrial partner with us, L3 Harris, uh, Allison Transmission, Anderl, uh, our friends there. We are, all of our teammates are, have a responsibility as well to ramp, grow, and deliver alongside us. One of the most exciting things about being a somewhat new entrant into this space, but with the backbone and foundation of a global excellent company like Rheinmetall, is we can bring new industrial capability, we can bring next generation industrial manufacturing techniques. We've done this in Australia, we've done this uh, in Eastern Europe as well, we want to do this here in the US. So what we're talking to the government about is building new, integrated, fully functional, lean, 
advanced manufacturing capability. Where exactly we put that is a conversation we want to have with a lot of these states. There's lots of opportunities to partner for folks to assist us with that investment, but uh, it's a really exciting opportunity alongside delivering a hell of a vehicle. And let me ask you one last question, right? You guys have a vast portfolio globally. Uh, you guys obviously you don't want to be the one trick XM30 uh, uh, pony. Uh, you guys, you know, most most of the folks in this hall know you as the gun maker for the 105s and the, and the 120s. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you see this growth strategy and where you want American Rheinmetall to be, say, in a decade. Sure. Well, I, I'll tell you, me personally, I'm trying to grow an American Rheinmetall that has the global excellence of global Rheinmetall. That makes us one of the global giants. You mentioned already, really, the portfolio that we're looking at most closely beyond vehicles. Well, we have XM30. We're also involved in the common tactical truck. We have a solution already operated by 19 countries around the world. We can give you a next generation form of that. You have interoperability on day one. We're doing autonomy in vehicles as well. But where is really most of the talk in the industrial uh, need when you're at war in Eastern Europe? It's in munitions. Uh, we are an exquisite mission, uh, munitions company. We are looking to partner with the Army and grow in that space very much. I will tell you we have uh, a artillery demonstrator here with BAE, uh, an M109 with Rheinmetall's L52 cannon on it, which we, could, we would hope to be able to deliver the Army in 18 months, drastically re resolving uh, an artillery modernization need that is really lagged for the Army. Uh, let me ask you uh, one follow-up on that, right? You were the legislative guy for the Pentagon. You fought a lot of battles uh, on uh, some of this and actually tried to improve things on an export control uh, standpoint, right? Uh, the U.S. Army makes its guns at Watervliet Arsenal, for example. Uh, and you have a lot of export control limitations. You're not the first company who's coming to the United States that wants to shift technology around the world. Do you feel that there are any special issues and legislative lifts that need to happen to get to this global playing field that helps all allies and partners, whether they're in the Asia Pacific, they're in the United States, or in Europe? Yeah, I mean, look, in, in large caliber barrels, there's some specific legislative hurdles to, uh, to expanding and getting to a second source. Uh, we're going to work with the Army and the government on that. Um, the ultimate recipe for success, this is just practical. Of course, we're going to have the ability to source globally as the United States. But if you want to grow an American business, it's a large American business, and delivering for American soldiers, you have to deliver from America. Rheinmetall, we have a large American business now. Our content will be built here, designed here, made here by Americans. Uh, when the Army gives us the opportunity to do that or our other customers, we're ready to invest. The congressional delegations on the, and on, the, on the Hill, they love when you're bringing jobs and new capacity into their districts and to their states, so there are opportunities there. And we're really focused on where are the right places, who are the right partners, how do we grow our technology here in the U.S. And where there's legal obstacles, we'll work with the Army on overcoming those. Steve, thanks very much. Best of luck and look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. While at AUSA, we also caught up with Alex Cresswell, the CEO of Talis UK, one of Britain's leading defense contractors. Here's my conversation with Alex Cresswell. Alex, it's an absolute uh, pleasure uh, seeing you here. Thanks so very much for the time. Well, it's a great pleasure and it's nice to see you again. We're now 18 months, Alex, uh, into uh, Russia's brutal war on Ukraine. Uh, the United Kingdom is second uh, in uh, line after the United States in weapons suppliers and capability provider uh, for uh, Ukrainian forces. Talos uh, UK is one of the leading uh, defense contractors in the United Kingdom. Everything from the kinetic side of the equation uh, all the way to electronic means, whether it's jamming kit or uh, connectivity. From your standpoint, what are some of the most important lessons from this conflict that are shaping the future of your portfolio and eventually UK and European capabilities? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think we have to go back a wee bit further to understand completely 
uh, because the UK, the US, a number of other countries have been sending equipment from stockpiles that weren't really that big to start with. You know, it's at the end of a 30-year peace dividend that everybody's been cashing in. Stockpiles were probably at the lowest point they've been. So if significant proportions of the US and the European stockpiles are being sent to, to supply uh, weapons into the Ukraine war, there's a double problem, which is building the stockpiles back as well as supply. So I think uh, this is illustrating just the extent to which production capacities have to be built back. So where we are now is we're looking at doubling and then doubling again doubling back to the sorts of volumes we were seeing maybe 20 years ago and then doubling again uh, in, in the next few years. So a really, really big investment. But some of the systems that uh, uh, we need to do that with are ones for which there's been no production offtake for a decade. Um, some of the systems that the UK has uh, sent uh, to, to Ukraine that have been very successful, systems uh, that have been used very successfully against armoured helicopters, for example, um, first went into the UK inventory in the mid-90s. And the last production volumes uh, were procured a decade ago, which means that even chemicals that we were able to use in the factory 30 years ago, we're no longer allowed to use in, in production. So there's a significant amount of work that's got to go in and where a lot of companies like ours are seeing this is in the pyrotechnics, the, um, the energetics in the supply chain. These have got to be requalified for, and, and this takes a, a lot of time. So basically, um, a lot of countries have reached out to turn the tap back on of production and found that there's a whole load of problems in the plumbing that needs, needs fixing to be able to double and double again. Um, and how do we do this as an alliance? Uh, right, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody wants their sovereign capabilities. France was one of the nations that did not cut back as much, so has a lot of latent industrial capability. UK, I think an admission, maybe dialed back a little bit uh, more. What's the right way to do this? Because speed is of the essence. Not only do we need to be supplying the Ukrainians, but it looks like we might be need to supply also capabilities uh, to Israel now in their moment of need as nations line up to help. What's the right way to do this transatlantically? So, so speed is of the essence, and you've got ad two additional pressures. Uh, one, post-COVID and all the challenges that had on the supply chain, and the fact that um, uh, supply chains are having to become more sovereign. Um, the age of totally unconstrained globalization is probably behind us, which means there's a this has shone a light on the greater interdependency there is between nations in their supply chain. So you've seen things like the guided weapons uh, enterprise in Australia where the US has um, realised that to get depth and resilience into its energetic supply chain it needs to reach to Australia for Australian supply but also supply back into the US supply chain in order to give more depth and more resilience to its supply chain. And it's an example of what we're seeing uh, all, all around the place. As you say, some countries scale back a bit more than others. Uh, but in an energetics is a really good example. You have 
underneath it very few companies actually producing the chemicals necessary. It's, uh, so it comes down to a very, very small number of companies that we've got to think about scaling up on an allied basis, not just a national basis. Yeah. Um, let me uh, take you to the question uh, of uh, specific capabilities. You know, as you look at that, uh, the battlefield and how it's evolving, everybody looks at Ukraine as um, almost the Spanish Civil War in terms of how capabilities are being used, unmanned capabilities. Indeed, Russian commentators, you know, looking at Israel have been warning the Israelis, uh, you know, in their own internal discussions, you know, massed forces are in trouble in a drone-enabled era, for example. And you guys have developed some very unique counter-drone capabilities as well. As you look at the capability portfolio, say five or 10 years later, where are the kind of spots you guys are going to be investing to have your company, but also your customers as they move to this next generation of capabilities? Well, you've already hit on a few of those in, in the question because this is the first war in reality where autonomy has been deployed and real autonomy rather than just remote control at scale and that's never going to go away again. But despite that, there is still the need for combat mass of, of some sort. Uh, there are still huge amounts of ordnance being fired on both sides the need to occupy territory, occupy ground. So although you've seen autonomy, I think that's everything associated with that. Uh, the use of autonomous platforms to deliver effects, uh, counter autonomous platforms, all the electronic warfare associated with combating uh, those kind of platforms, we'll see a proliferation in all of those. I think the transparent battlefield, the use of, of um, uh, open source information combined with uh, military information in order to have a, uh, an almost real-time awareness on both sides of the strength and disposition of, of friendly and enemy forces, that's not going to go away. But that means that the cyber vulnerability of those capabilities becomes much more important, avoiding the enemy getting inside those, those uh, transparent uh, battlefield uh, uh, pieces of data becomes important. So we'll see significant investment in those kind of capabilities. But in the end, the need for mass hasn't gone away and this has reminded everybody of that. Um, let me ask you uh, an interesting question. You know, a couple of years ago, I think it was at the uh, Royal Air and Space, uh, Royal Air Force's uh, Air and Space Chiefs Conference uh, that was uh, not this summer, but last summer, where the chief of the U.S. Air Force, C.Q. Brown, and uh, at the time, uh, the chief of the air staff, uh, Mike Wigston, were talking about sort of more modular capabilities in terms of what f future weapons could be, right? Have a degree of modularity and think through some of these designs so that on an allied basis, an alliance basis, this is something that's been important now to Chairman Brown to try to do that uh, from uh, the standpoint of the alliance. Talos is pretty much as global of a company as, as you can get. What do you think that future starts to look like? I mean, is there a modular weapons future out there that allows allies and partners to build and build at scale, but try to do this in an integrated, simplified process that allows you to build more stuff in more places more quickly? Okay, so there's, there's nothing new about that from our point of view. You know, we, we look at markets across a globe, and that means we think of as many clients as we possibly can service, not necessarily with complete products, but with 
parts of products that can be reused. And indeed, this discussion is taking place right next to one that was designed, in fact, it's even got it in the name, the lightweight modular missile, where the fuse, the lethal effects, the guidance and control part are all modular and are all used on um, more than one missile. The launch environments from which the missile we're standing next to and the high-velocity missile, they're identical. They go in the same launch tube, same fire control systems. And this is the kind of modularity that enables uh, a much more economic production of capability, a much more rapid um, production of capability. But it also means from an operational viewpoint, you give commanders significantly more flexibility with just a common fire control system able to use many effectors and many sensors integrated into it. So it, it, it's very, very clear that what we've had to do in order to uh, compete in a global business uh, against global competitors actually accrues as advantage to our clients also in ability to put systems together more quickly and to use systems more widely and more effectively more quickly. Alex, thanks so very much. Best of luck and it's terrific seeing you here at AUSA. Well, it's lovely to see you, Vargo. Thank you so much.